0: You know, there's a lot of difficulty in having a challenged child. But when you have those children and you don't have to care about the world, it's not so hard at all, at all. It's actually you just love them how they are and you just help them learn the next thing. And it's that simple. But the minute you have to care what the neighbors think, the teachers think, the all of that, all of that, you know, the therapist says you should do it this way or that way. Uh, When you're trying to live up to all of the ideas you have that you carried with you from your childhood, that you, you know, those are the things that are hard. I can honestly say it wasn't ever my kids that broke me down into tears. It was always the world.
1: Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. My guest today is Dr. Lynette Louise, and I wanted to begin her episode with a little introduction because our conversation covers quite a lot of territory. I feel like it's important to note that the episode is a little bit longer than the ones have been lately. She is otherwise known as the brain broad, and she has many years of experience helping to reprogram autistic brains with neurofeedback, biofeedback, and she is a foster parent. She has many, many children. She has grandchildren. She started off with multiple marriages very young. She endured abuse as a child and at an early age knew that no matter what happened, she was going to have children and that she was never going to hurt them. And she reached a crisis in her life when behaviors with her partner started to ripple down to the children. And she realized she needed to figure something out about motherhood. And the only way she could was to figure out something about womanhood. While this was all happening, she was negotiating the neuro differences in her children and how to get them what they needed in school. So this episode is about autism for Autism Awareness Month. It's also about domestic abuse. It's also about child abuse. It's also about the differently abled and finding a way to nurture and grow children no matter what their differences are. And I highly recommend you listen to the whole episode There's so much here, and um, it's a pleasure to have been able to have this conversation with Lynette. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, my guest is Dr. Lynette Louise. Welcome. Thank you, and I appreciate you having me here. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here, and I know that you're getting set to travel soon. Um, If I have that timeline right, aren't you leaving on an RV trip with your kids soon? Um, yeah, probably end of
0: March, the coronavirus shutdown has changed sort of the timing a bit.
1: Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about so we have so much to discover about you. And I know a little bit about your story, but I want to make sure I cover all the bases. So you have raised eight children, six of them are adopted, right? Technically, four were adopted. Two were
0: legal. I was the legal custodian Mm -hmm. of and two were biological. So, you know, I usually just wrap up six were adopted because it's so complex. Easier, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I know that they're mostly grown now. Is that right? They're all grown now. They're all grown. I'm you a have- great grandma
0: yeah. now. Yeah. We are way
1: <laughs> beyond my past. We're, <laughs> we're dead in the center of the present end. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw some of the beautiful photos of your children and your grandchildren um, on your social media, and I thought, wow, those are some cute babies. So, um, and you also don't seem like someone who could have a great grandchild <laughs> whatsoever. But you know, um, so how? Let's talk about this. Like, what? When did you begin to realize? that you wanted a big family?
0: Uh, You know, when I was hiding in the bathroom from my mother's rage with my legs locked against the door and my back against the wall, I was sitting there thinking, remember how this feels. Remember how this feels. Make sure you save children. How many do you want? Six. No. Eight. No. 12. Yeah, I want 12. And <laughs> what was wow. what's interesting is I kind of did exactly that um, because six were adopted, um, but it was eight when you add the biological. And I co-parented four of my grandkids. So that made 12. And it wow. was, yeah, it was interesting in a way that has kind of matches the title of your show one of the things that I've noticed of uh, you know in life is that whatever when you were a kid um, you sort of dreamed of and envisioned you you kind of got it it always takes a little different shape and it takes a while for you to notice that you're there and you might have given it a div- a different title but I'll give you another example of that my daughter my eldest biological child um, and by the way the only reason I point out the kids were adopted is because I, they were multiply handicapped and fetal alcohol syndrome was in four of them. And I used to not mention it because I wanted them to seem, you know, and I felt as if they were all just my children. But I saw someone's face once when I was, I had said, oh, yeah, and those ones have fetal alcohol. And I was like, oh, I didn't do it. <laughs> So you, you start to realize that you have to explain <laughs> right. you you have yourself to kind of much more clearly, right? Anyway, back to my my example on that. Uh, so my daughter, when she was young, my eldest, she wanted to have a bunch of dirty kids living in the country that played in the dirt and mud and felt free. And she literally had four boys. The one, She was the one I, I co-parented the kids with for a long time. And uh, I bought a country house and they ran wild and free. And, and you know, they dug their own swim hole. And one year they created a whole fort that had couches and everything out of the ground. And uh, yeah, like it was wow, definitely like really 30 free kids childhood. running free. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Where where did you raise your family? Um different places. I I was
0: mostly in Ontario when I raised my kids in Canada and then um, moved to Texas when the boys were preteen and teen. Uh girls were already older, they were already grown.
1: The the family tree for you is a little more complex, you know, the family that you created. And <laughs> I'm curious, were were you a single mom, a single parent?
0: You know, in my book for parents with autism. It's called Miracles Are Made, A Real Life Guide to Autism. When I sat down to write it, I thought, how am I going to deal with this whole family tree thing and help them to be able to you know look at the beginning at a picture or something say oh yeah she's talking about this one you know because it's hard it's hard to follow and I so I created a a family tree but I also created a husband tree because (laughs) (laughs) that was another issue I I I, you know, I grew up thinking that you have to be married to somebody. If you have children, you can't live with them or have sex with them or any of that. And, and you know, I was young and beautiful and wanted to have a real life. Uh-huh. So I married a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and they also pretended or thought, actually, they didn't pretend. They thought they could be heroes. And I liked that. I wanted a hero that would take care of us. But... Yeah. When you got a bunch of special needs kids, they very quickly go, oh, man, they, this is a lot of work and leave. And so one friend of mine said, because it actually numbers five husbands, by the way. OK. <laughs> um, but I literally only lived with husband number one and number three for any length of time. Otherwise, it's like two weeks, two months, two right? Um, because of this problem they had with uh with the kids and stuff. Well, that's so. interesting.
1: I mean, didn't they know who you were when they met you and decided to get married? Yeah, well,
0: you know, that think of your life and and don't you know who someone is when you make a friend and then you don't know who they are when you see them do something? Or you I mean, this is just a reality. We Now we'll talk about my expertise, which is the brain. We have a bias and a blind spot. And if we, for example, husband number five, he had this dream that he would be the most important thing in the world to some woman. Um, And that took the shape of she would, and he was a millionaire, multimillionaire. So that took the shape of she would ignore whatever was most important to her for me. So then I would pick him over the kids, right? Well, I'm not gonna do that, (laughs) right? But that was his dream that operated inside him and created a bias and a blind spot. Now he didn't voice that ever, but when we got to know each other better and and stuff, it was very clear that that was really true for him. Uh, We never actually lived together because I found it out like, within days of getting married and we were still on the honeymoon and went, wait a minute, how about we live in two different places? And I figure this out. And, uh, and we just, we, we were legally married for 10 years, but we were never, ever living together.
1: Well, I have this question about the brain because I know, and we are going to talk in a little bit about, you know, your expertise and what brought you to that field and, but the brain and, and what you do, does it have to do with patterns and change in the brain?
0: Well. Yeah, everything... That would, that would encompass everything. So that's really easy to say yes to. Uh
1: (laughs) Well, because what I, what I guess what I'm leading you on is because what I wanted to say was that there's this feeling that like people don't change, right? The people who you marry, you know, who you marry, they don't really change. They're not going to change because you married them. Right. But at the same time, people are really capable of change and, and they can change. Like we really can emotionally change if we want to. So I was just kind of thinking about the brain and the ability to change and, and the things that people say about themselves, but then maybe aren't able to do? You know, that's
0: a really rich question that we can really um, help your your listeners by answering and I want it. I want you to help me get there in a second I'm realizing that the there's sort of a need for the listener to hear a sort of a linear representation of my life so that they don't go well why would we listen to someone who got married five times and why did she leave the multi-millionaire he must have been <laughs> at least get some something in his will <laughs> right I'm like sorry money's not my priority um So let me, let me just do a little, a little storytelling moment. Let's do it. Uh, So as you probably gathered from my motivating moment, um, I was raised in a house where there was a lot of rage by my mother. She was a great rager. Um, She was also a well-respected teacher. She worked really hard. She, you know, curled our hair every Sunday night. She sewed our clothes. We baked. We learned how to do many of these things ourselves, but because she taught us. And because if we didn't do it, we'd be Literally killed. No, not literally, but really close. Um, and she also had favorites, you know, the two eldest, the eldest boy, the eldest girl, and I didn't fall in that in that arena. So there was all that going on, and it was a time when there there was a certain amount of cruelty to parenting anyway. and so I grew up in that and had a lot of PTSD and a lot of trauma and what what you would call a poor blueprint for love. So I understood what it was to be a good parent for the most part, because I, as I lived my life, created stories. I've always been driven to write. Um, I've always, you know, poems, songs, write. I've got CDs out, I've got books out, I've got, I still do all that. So I, I created like a journal of what just went wrong and how it should have been. It was life-saving. And when I couldn't write it down, I just sat there and memorized it. Okay. What did she say? How did I act? What should have happened? Um, Now that is special. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but now that I'm at this, (laughs) in the end of my life. Are you
1: saying you had this emotional maturity and sort of perspective at that point that, that you knew enough to know that what was happening was not right. And you also saw a different way out of it and how it should be.
0: What I mean is I was a survivor and that's the, the like sort of the way that I became a survivor was to be aware that I had a future, that my future needed to be less confusing because I was always, mom was very deluded. She would, you know, she'd say A and then the next day you'd say A trying to impress her and she'd say no B, right? And so she changed history. Uh, if you look up you know the sort of the things that abusive people do one of them is to change history it's very hard on your you know your mental health it it's very confusing and especially the you know when you're a child you're in a state of um well, childhood's kind of a state of abuse because you have no control,
1: right? <laughs> I I really, I really resonate with what you're saying. I feel like for me, children and childhood is an essential part of the stories that I listen to and I'm interested in. Did you have a father in the picture?
0: Yeah. And my dad was pretty passive aggressive and, you know, he would do stuff like try to, so in some ways he was worse because I thought he was great. And he would do stuff like your mom says she'll be mad at me if that you'll never talk to me again if I you know, give you another quarter or your mom says right <laughs> so he like played us against her and and it was it was you know I was like I, I love my daddy and right but then so he you know when he would finally lose it and it would be you know the house would be going crazy mom would be screaming and throwing us down the stairs or me anyway and finally he'd lose his temper and uh end up punching
1: but uh, punching you
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah! Like straddling me on the bed and punching me. But those, I can count those number of times. And those always felt like, okay, like he, you know, he had the right, I'd lost it. And, um, and I wanted him to be
1: the good guy because then I had no good guy. And so I literally um, forgot those always right away. That's interesting. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday about the difference in siblings' memories and who becomes sort of a, has allegiance to certain parents and others remember things totally different. Right.
0: So, you know, there, there's those, these two layers. One is I recognize because I'm a child that someday I'm going to be a mother and I need to know how to do this, and that what's happening is not right, and that I have to survive, and I have to not feel always confused. And so I, I sort of tracked it as I grew. Now, did I do that perfectly? Of course not. Of course not. You know, as a parent, I was constantly going, crap, I'm being my mother again. <laughs> right. Um, and having to correct that, and having to go to the kids and say, hey, I'm, I'm the wrong hair and not because I was hitting and that sort of thing, but nobody's that without being all these other crazy things. So, so I was willing to, that was another thing. I was willing to apologize because my mother never, ever took blame and never apologized. And I knew that was wrong.
1: Now, as as an an early mother, would you, as, as an early as a young mother, and just as a person in the world, as you became an adult and got out of that house, I'm curious about like, what was your level of calm, anxiety, rage, just on a regular daily basis? Were you wound tight or were you, did you find peace? Um, Peace came long, was a lot of work.
0: Uh, So peace is a big word. And that took an awful lot of effort and about $200,000 worth of classes and, and, you know, weird uh, meditation style, find yourself things. And um, so no, I didn't have peace, but I had, I was inclined to depression and to suicide. When I, uh, my whole life, I was inclined to depression and suicide until I had a baby. And then I realized I had something to live for that would love me. There's a couple of points. We started that I, I really want to hit. So we started this on the husband thing and I explained it. So I had a bad blueprint. Well, I had a fairly decent blueprint for parenting. I had really, in some ways, a better blueprint than the person raised right that never paid attention to it. But I had a lousy blueprint for what love was when it wasn't the parent-child love. Now I knew that I loved my mom with a desperation that was, that was really unhealthy almost. And that as a parent, you had so much power and you shouldn't abuse it. You should respect it because my kids wouldn't love me no matter what I did. And I walked into parenting knowing I was loved because of that. So that was kind of a blessing. Even when they were teenagers and saying they hate me or whatever, I knew they loved me. Like, I never didn't know that. And that was a huge blessing. When it came to men, my mother and father were always fighting. And that was the worst part of being raised by them. It was easier to be hit than to hear them fight. Much, much, much easier, much easier because these are the two people that you love that you look up to and you hear them fighting all the time and screaming, you know, divorce and, I, and it was just awful. And if they're fighting me, I'm fighting back or I'm, you know, it, when you're being hit, you're in trauma and, and you actually don't feel it. It's not that painful till later when you're healing. So I, like, I learned a lot of things that have made me fearless. Um, while I work with very violent people, actually, <laughs> that's what I do now. Um, so, you know, there were some benefits there, but, I, as a, you know, as a woman to love a man, I just kept thinking, no, you know, and my dad was doing this passive aggressive thing about mom. And so my idea was to be traditional, was to let the man be the boss, to do whatever I was told. But now I'm not very good at that, by the way, but, uh, (laughs) but I surely gathered
1: that, I gathered that, (laughs) but
0: I also had the line of, you will never hit me because my mom was a hitter and a kicker and a swearer and a drag you by the hairer. And um, those two didn't go together very well because I was picking guys that wanted to be the boss, that wanted to be in control of me. And that made me feel like that's kind of a little bit nervous. That felt like the love I had for my mom, not but with romance, but but like intense like that. But then they would be angry or negative in a way that I couldn't have around the kids because I'd already made a line in the sand on that as a child. Or one hit me once. Like I just didn't, there's no forgiving it. There's, okay, this is a, this is not a thing. This is not happening. So I was marrying wrong in comparison to the life I wanted to lead. And I didn't know how to do that for a long, long, long time. And now I don't really have a desire to get married. But if I did, it would be a very, 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 very different kind of person. It'd be a best friend. In fact, my first husband and I ended up best friends and lived together at the end and raised the grandkids a little bit. So that was fun. Yeah. So it sort of tied a bow in it, right? It's like, oh, I picked the first one, right? We were just too young. So we got back together and he died of cancer and we had to say goodbye, but, um, but there was kind of a, a full circle, happy ending there. So that gives your guests a little bit of an understanding yeah. more, you know, of that. I want to answer your last question before you ask another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like to leave these open loops. <laughs> um, so you were asking about the do people change. And uh, yes and no. Yes and no. You are who you are. You if you've, you know worked with as many different kinds of brain-challenged people, uh, neurotypical people, emotionally traumatized people, whatever, um, as I have, and then raised all these kids and gone through all this stuff. The one thing I can guarantee you is you are who you are stylistically. So my oldest biological child was born and just sort of smiled at me and slept through the night for <laughs> at seven days old and yeah, was always like, one right? of those lucky ones. Right. And she's still my, she's my assistant and my helpmate. And we, you know, we did so many things together and still do. And, and she was just that that person. She likes to be not the lead horse, but right, right beside the lead <laughs> horse. And you know what I mean? She, and she's just, yeah. you know, she loved to be the nice one. And those were her motivators in life. Um, and my next baby, um, died, but then my, my third child, uh, Brenda, so she came out kicking and screaming and she wouldn't sleep. (laughs) And I was like, Hey, I thought it was such a great mom. What's going on? Well, as adults, they are still these people, you know, uh, Brenda is the, a high money-making producer that can handle anything that will uh, tackle any problem. And Sara's the great assistant who's always kind and nice and social and like they are who they are. Did they change? No. Did they grow? Did they learn? Did, did they make mistakes and then have to address their own self and, and say, wow, I can't be that kind of person over and over again. Yeah. So yeah. we change, but our core style, even special needs kids, you know, even multiply handicapped kids, you can say, Oh, it's this person belongs in this sort of personality type, and this one's this personality type. You keep that. You change unless you have like a frontal lobe injury or something, then you that's different, right? But no, you don't you don't change who you are intrinsically, but you change all the time, the habits and the the beliefs that you hold. And that's why you can be radicalized. That's why you can be um, unradicalized. That's why, you know, so yeah, we change and we don't.
1: Do you know when you decided that you wanted to adopt some children and how you decided, what was the driving force behind children who were neuro t- neuro well how do I say it well, who, who were on the spectrum or what were their cognitive Cognitively challenged, multiply
0: handicapped it doesn't matter what you say it, you're gonna make someone mad. So uh you know I'm I'm doing differently abled right so now. So when
1: did you make the decision? I mean what you you know you have these two girls, right? These two birth children, right? And and so when did you know? Oh, or did it just happen? Like how did you fall into this? Um well
0: I think it was a norm to adopt because my father was an adopted child and my brother, I had a brother that was adopted. So adoption was part of the choices you might make. Um, And I had three children. My middle child was a boy that died. And so that was really painful. And I, I already had two, which means, you know, I've already sort of filled my place in the world that way so I was open to adoption I wouldn't though have adopted if I hadn't ended up unable to have children not because I wouldn't have tried but because it's easier to have children than it is to adopt them So it's such a process. It's so challenging. Uh, Initially, once you are a known family that doesn't give children back because a large percentage of children are returned, like when I was doing it, it was 75% of the children that were adopted were returned. That's just a gross statistic. And I don't know what it is today. But um, yeah, it's such a difficult process. They're looking at you, you know, all the time and you have to do all this. I'm a nice person. I'll be good. right? (laughs) And it's, it's not, you know, fun at all. But, um, but I couldn't have more children and I wanted more children. I had a destiny to fulfill. And I sort of just started wanting to have an even number. I had two girls. I thought I'll get two boys. That'd be good. Um, And the process itself sort of brings you somewhere else. You know, you start looking into it, you start reading about it, you're doing the classes they put you through, the, you know, and they're trying to get certain people adopted. And they're trying to get people housed. At one point in fact my oldest son was a foster child for a short bit because he wasn't adoptable. They were going to put him in an institution and nobody would take him and his bed wasn't ready and they talked me into it and I didn't want to and I couldn't give him back. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you sort of fall into it. I I, I do a lot of comedy about it um in my 1 on 1 show because it was really just a not a story of altruism it was a story of wanting balance and constantly seeking that and and having my heart strings tugged on by these kids that needed homes and um and then i had an affinity for it i i just really understood what it was to be challenged and to be abused and to be in a place of uh, nobody wants me. I don't belong anywhere. And I love all my kids and I love them all uniquely each one. Um, But it is true that the ones that I saved, quote unquote, saved, even, even the ones that are busy with other things that never talk to me very often, (laughs) Um, they, you know, they pulled at my heart in a new and different way that, Um, that was really, really special. Um, It was also, uh, it was a more multifaceted kind of loving. I don't know how to express it really. Now my biological kids ended up in that same place because adopting so many challenged kids kind of put them through the ringer. And so they end up the ones that I'm also saving, right? It's so int- It was such an interesting and long and convoluted journey. Um, but the boys who were multiply handicapped, only one still lives with me. Uh, all the rest are independent, uh, living great lives. Uh, wow. They're miracle children. Um, and I, you know, I, I in some ways owe
1: that to my mother
0: being as awful as she was. <laughs> You know,
1: you mentioned to me uh, in an earlier conversation that you had hit a point where you felt you were falling apart uh, as a mom at some point. And where in time was that? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was. Let's see, I'd
0: already had I'd had the three kids, so we'd already had death with the boy and then um how old was he by the way when he died it was at birth
1: yeah Mm -hmm. um
0: and then I had already married twice and I was 22 and I was that was that marriage was falling apart and I thought I I am so bad at being a mom because I'm bad at being a woman And that moment, I had to kill myself because I was like, well, if I'm bad at being a mom, I have no purpose in life. That's it. And I can't give my kids up, so I'll have to die. And I would say that was my biggest, hugest um, fall apart ever in my whole life. And it was all wrapped together with my sister having visited me in search of her memories. Because, you know, you do this whole blocking thing and uh, survival Thing. And she was in search of her memories and had come to visit me and she'd said, no, dad hit you too. And this is when I was having to re- recall it. And every time I got in a dark space, I could see him punching me like it was like reliving. And it was an extremely traumatic fall apart. The only time I ever went to see a psychiatrist. I saw her twice and I was over it. But um I, I mean, it was a mess and I thought, you know, I, I really, I'm a bad mom. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep marrying bad people. It's going to be bad. My kids are not going to be raised by someone good. They sh- so I called their dad and said, you better come and get the kids. Um, and he came and got them. And I said, it's too much for me. And he came and got them. And then I slipped my wrists And somebody that I was dating found me and, you know, he basically said, go get your babies. Nobody's better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Fortunately, I was savable without the hospital, so I didn't have to do that. Um, By the next day, I, I sat and really honestly looked at what it would be like for them to be raised by their dad. And I thought, no, he's right. Not only that, but I can be better than I am. And I can just, no matter what mistakes I make as a woman, as I figure this woman thing out, I can i can make sure they don't touch the kids. So, um, you know, I tried that and, and there were still mistakes. There were many times where I had to go, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. I mean, I've taken the kids to a shelter at one point so that I could learn the things I didn't know. This isn't a quick Heal, yeah, oh, right. Yeah,
1: when you say that you you d- when you talk about here we go again or you are making mistakes, I know that your life is long and I know that it's hard to really give it the proper attention it needs in this type of format. But for someone like me who doesn't know exactly what that means because I haven't lived that experience, what what were you seeing in yourself that would make you take them to a shelter? Um. So I got married a third
0: time and we were together a long time and I was very traditional and, uh, where we raised the kids or we adopted the kids together initially, not all of them, but some of them, that's how I started the adoption process. Um, the kids were too much for him and he molested my eldest daughter. And, uh, that's when I realized I just still don't know. I don't know anything. And that would be my second fall apart. That would be, the fall apart of me as a more in the present where I went, Jesus, I had no idea. I thought he was like a hero that would save us from anything. And, uh,
1: so you were really, it sounds like you were really destroyed about who you were and that you couldn't trust yourself for making decisions. At that moment, I what I felt like is that it's so funny, you know, the
0: sayings of life where they say the rug came out from under you or the, yeah. the sky is falling in or the ceiling fell in. They, those are the most accurate things in the world. I literally <laughs> felt like I could see the ceiling falling in and the ground was leaving from underneath me. When I find, when my daughter told me, um, you know, I mean, he got arrested and all that stuff. But then it, he spent one night in jail. And so then I'm like, what do I do? How do I change this? And he's trying to make, get back together. And um, and I just went to a shelter with the kids and said, until I know that I'm a good person at living, never mind you know, I'm nice to my kids. I'm focused on how to help them learn. I'm learning about the brain. I'm doing all these things to help my kids, but it's in isolation of me as a woman. And I thought I had it figured. I was so convinced. I was like nuts in love with this guy right, right to the moment she told me. And uh, and in fact, I, I think if I hadn't watched a Ted Danson movie of all things the night before, I might have said, you're
1: lying. And thank God for that movie. Was it that movie, Something About Amelia?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Anyway, it's the dad and he's molesting yes. her. And they, I mean, there was bad things about that movie too, because then I thought we should do counseling because they did counseling and we shouldn't. We should just leave him. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't like counseling. <laughs> I can really hear that. I love, um, I love self-improvement very much. And I love uh, learning about what really works. Unfortunately, counseling often keeps you in the circle you're in. And I want it out of it. Um, I can give wow, you an
1: it's really so much. And you're right about that. And I feel like I can understand. It's almost like, I don't want to put it into my words, but it almost feels like a crisis of faith because if you can't, Trust yourself to make decisions for your family, then your mission in life, which is to be this mom and to help these kids, is just completely at stake.
0: Right. And I'm going to save them and I'm going to keep them safe and they were in danger.
1: Right. It's just crushing. Crushing.
0: Oh, it's so crushing. Um So what did you have
1: to learn? I mean, what did you have to do
0: to become? Well, there was some. Okay, so one of the things I had to do because I had him arrested, um, then the rule was for parents had to go to counseling. So I went to this group counseling thing and uh, I got something very valuable out of that. And then I didn't go back. Um, I was already taught what I needed to know, which is that they were all repeating their own patterns and only thinking of themselves. So every one of these women in this group counseling session, none of them were talking about what happened to their child, which was why they were there. All of them were talking about the rapes and molestations that had happened to them. And I was, I had all that too in my background, but I sat there and I heard it. And I, at one point I said, do you, does, do you guys hear this? Do you hear that? Like, cause I hadn't known this. I hadn't known that you would pick someone who would do those things. I had known and heard, um, from, you know, radio and television and stuff that you, uh, if you were abused, you might abuse. So I knew that, and I was careful of that. I, I watched myself. I changed myself at every turn. I, I was very vigilant, but, um, I had, nobody had ever said you might go the opposite and become the, the docile one who, uh, picks the wrong person that had never occurred to me. And I, I was shocked and, that shock was part of what made me take the kids to the shelter and ask for the rest of the knowledge. And they taught all about the cycle of abuse. They taught about uh, changing history, for example. I hadn't known that. You know, that you can say, that, well, we've just had a president to it. <laughs> but that's, that's what's done, right? You, you hit someone in the face and, and you literally in that moment, like you slap them across the face and in that moment say, oh, why are you crying? Hmm. What's wrong? Why are you crying? Like, it's crazy making. It's crazy making. So changing history, the minute I found out that was a technique, I went, my whole life started to make sense. And so each of these things that they taught, and you can just look up the cycle of abuse, the honeymoon period, how they're nice to you, they do something nice. So now you feel all warm and fuzzy and you think they're, all, you know, and then i bam, there it comes again, right? <laughs> um, the way it becomes your fault, all these things. So that led to me learning about the brain in a new way. Up until then, I'd just been doing self-help and looking, for, trying to shake all my, uh, the problems I had because of my religion. I was super religious. So um, it had you know, had me scared of living in fear and choosing in fear and choosing based Mm -hmm. on these things instead of having my own intellect and my own heart available to me. And so I had already sort of divested myself of that. And I'd done a lot of self-help and I was, you know, really doing a, a nice job with the kids, except for the environmental piece. And the shelter really cleared that up. And I started like crazy learning about the brain and, yeah, I'd already had I already had a degree in computers, so now I applied what I understood about, uh, you know, how you make a software, how you make machines work, how you make them think, and applied that to the brain, and and I ended up actually being a uh, really gifted with uh, helping people to change and using technology, computer-driven technology, to help you change your brainwave activity and, and enhance your emotions and your behaviors and.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that work in in this part of the interview since, you know, when I first knew about your work, I thought, well, she she learned all this. She went back to school and studied the brain because of her children, you know, her, all these different neurological differences, but it also has to be rooted in your own desire to change your behavior. Right. Right, yeah. right. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. simultaneously, simultaneously, everything always. I was always only a couple steps ahead of my kids. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and I even have, um, you know, Asperger's as a possible diagnosis. Um, I talked to someone later in life and she said, well, it sounds like you're over it, but. I don't know, can we call it historical Asperger's you had? <laughs> and, you know, that probably was true. And it may have been, uh, you know, part of the reason I got most of the beatings at home is that I was probably too literal, too, you know, thrown by a lot of the things and too blunt, way too blunt, and way too sure I was right about everything. <laughs> um so, so yeah, I had, I was just always just a little bit ahead of the kids when we were young. Of course, I've outdistanced them by far now because I've stayed at it, but, um, but they're great. Um, you know, what can I tell you about the work? So the work I do now is kind of a combination of all this life learned, it, you know, nothing replaces the experience of having gotten better because you understand what it is, and how important it is, and that life is better on the other side. It just is. It's good to feel good. It just is. And I'm intolerant of not feeling good. So I quickly fix it. And I know how to fix it. And so there's this huge value in In that, So I never don't bring that part with me, that part that understands human behavior from having lived it and from having helped others, Um, my own family, my, you know, and all the people that I work with. Um, That's a big piece of it. And then there's the schooled bits. And a lot of that's wrong. But some of it's really valuable. And I held on to that and, and got to really understand the brain. That's where I really got focused. I eventually, so I was learning play therapy, different things to do with the kids and getting certifications and all that and taking classes in colleges and getting degrees. And um, I really found something special when I found neurofeedback, which is biofeedback for the brain. I'm not my kids never did drugs. I tried Ritalin at one point, uh, but I one of my sons said it makes me feel lonely. And I thought, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> I don't care if you're acting better in class. I don't want you feeling lonely. And I just believed they could improve. And I believed they could learn. And I believed that if I kept using the when you use prescription medicine, now there's ta- there's times for that. There's life changing moments for that. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not dissing it completely, but it does take time. So you, for example, you decide, okay, I'm going to try this haloperidol with this, my son. And, and now you're eight weeks in and you had the eight week honeymoon and he was doing really great. And now you have the down regulation in the brain and, and now it's not going so good. And now maybe they try a different strength. And so by the time you go, oh, I don't think so. Now you have to tie trade off. So you have to take it back, walk it back slowly. So you, you just killed a year or six months to a year on this. Now your children are growing up and you're spending a lot of time focused on just their diet and their, and their medicines and, and you're forgetting to raise them because you're so busy politically fighting with the teachers and all these things that eat you up as a parent of a special child and I noticed it right away. I went, wait a minute, they're going to be 20, and I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm going to have fixed some policy in the school, and I'm going to have, but my kids are still going to be struggling, so I didn't do that. I focused on my children's learning, and I got rid of all the stuff that they don't need to know so that they could become independent and complete their learning at their leisure as adults in the adult world, sort of, you know, being independent. And that was my smartest move. Um, and I can explain that more clearly, but let's get to the other piece. And so then I had these kids that were getting better, but they weren't losing their anxiety. They weren't losing their um their panic and and their sensitivity and their their weird sensory stuff and all the play and all the focus and all the work and I was doing all the work because I I had the energy of making it up for lost time or mistakes or changing the world in me and I found neurofeedback and what it was was something where I could look at their brainwaves. If I learned how to do it myself, I could look at their brainwaves, see where they were out of balance, and they would change their own brainwave imbalances by playing a video game using these brainwaves. And I was like, so it's not a medicine. I'm not being intrusive to who they are. I'm literally educating them like when I used to write software, And it just made so much sense. It was also a lot like what I was doing with play. It was responding to the behavior only instead of the behavior of their child, the behavior of the brainwaves, which was your neurons, which gives you your uh, neurochemistry. So it's all connected. And I was just pumped. And it was the difference for like my son who had Tourette's and ticks and uh, retardation, fetal alcohol syndrome, and autism, <laughs> um, he doesn't really have the ticks. And in super, super st- stressful moment, he'll kind of stutter tick, um, but nothing terrible, um, nothing notable, whereas before it was you know, really a challenge. He's uh, no longer what you would call retarded. He's what you would call kind of the, the low end of normal, but that's, that's a huge, that's a huge difference. He's lived on his own for 15 years, paid his own bills, done his own, like, um, But yeah, it it was neurofeedback that made that possible. And I couldn't have done it without the neurofeedback. So I finally found this one piece that would help me create change quicker and make it so that I could optimize their ability to help themselves. And that's what I now do for everyone. Well, actually, I'm retiring, but um, and speaking and teaching it so trying to make sure that I pass everything I know on. And that's why the books and all that stuff. But um, so
1: you've been a, you've been hired by different institutions. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you were working? Yeah, uh, most recently? I, um,
0: So one of the things I asked myself when I first started uh, working professionally was what was the hardest thing when I was a parent? And it was the drip drip, financial drip drip, the time drip drip of trying to help the kids and being at someone else's uh, beck and call. So the education system, the therapist, whatever. And I could always find a way to gather a large amount of money together. At one point, I even, to get a certain therapy for my son, I got up at four in the morning and put letters in people's mailboxes. It was before crowdfunding (laughs) existed and (laughs) and the internet wasn't here yet. So, right. right? And uh, it ended up in the paper. I got all this money. We did, uh, we we managed to do the therapy and then some. So it was... It was always possible. I use that as an example because it was always possible for me to find a way to solve a problem. But that drip, drip, drip was really difficult and uh, having to drive to appointments and stuff like that. And I decided to set my business up in a way that solved that problem. And so what I do or have done for many years now is I go to the people and it's expensive. They get their own equipment. They, I stay there for th- minimum three days um, as long as you like, but nobody wants to. <laughs> it's expensive, right, every day. So um, usually five days is a pretty common time. That's why my show about it is five days in length. Um, and I teach them behavioral changing methods. I teach, you know, I counsel, I, I help the parents to feel better about their situation. We do neurofeedback on everybody. I teach them how to do it. And then they themselves can continue for as long as they want to continue. And I guide them from the Internet. So the cost stops. And... Um, they have like a small amount that they have to pay to the company for these sessions, but it's very minor and they don't have to go to appointments. They've got it, all the equipment there and between the internet, you know, where if they need me to do a Skype or whatever, um, they're fine. They never have to see me again in person. Uh, well, you, you know, cause can. a lot of
1: people, yeah, no, I mean, it's really, it sounds like a real loss that you're retiring, but it sounds like you're doing what you need to do to, to, keep your work in the world so people can find it and do it.
0: Well, that, and it's, you know, my one son, my eldest who still lives with me, it's time for him to have some fun with all my attention and and do a little adventure. And he... He started life locked in a closet for years, and then he was going to ins- be institutionalized. And then, though I've always loved him and helped him, he's been sort of shoved aside for people over and over and over again. You know, he was always the one that really wasn't going to make it. He, Part of his skull is, wasn't worried. I mean, he's, he's a miracle, but he's a slow-moving mo- miracle. He's not the one that's going to you know, go and get married, although he was engaged at one point. Um, But I'd have been definitely helping the whole time. (laughs) um, I I just want, I love the world, but I want my son to have a time where he isn't having to step aside for a grandchild or a great grandchild or, you know, we just have some fun together. So I've planned a year and a half living in an RV and, and I'm not taking any new clients and I'm do it. We're going to do autism on the road, so there'll be shows, and I'll be teaching, and I'll do speaking because he can stay in the hotel room while I go do the speaking. Um, and we'll, I'll write some more books, and I'll I'll finish the shows. You know, so the the world can get the information if the world wants it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think it's really important because a lot of the people these days are, are struggling with a child who's not typical or who has different challenges. And it's hard, so hard as a parent, whether the, the situation is a physically based one or a neuro neurological one to wade through what you have to wade through to advocate for them, to get the care you need. It's like inventing the wheel every time. Well, that's why I didn't do
0: that. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't do that. It's, I, I tried advocating for them in the schools and stuff, and it never worked, and it was, it was killing our time. And I literally did this RV thing with them, and we learned on the road. Um, there, there's not, you know, there's a lot of difficulty in having a challenged child, but when you have those children and you don't have to care about the world it's not so hard at all at all it's actually you just love them how they are and you just help them learn the next thing and it's that simple but the minute you have to care what the neighbors think the teachers think the all of that all of that you know the therapist says you should do it this way or that way Uh, When you're trying to live up to all of the ideas you have that you carried with you from your childhood, that you, you know, those are the things that are hard. I can honestly say it wasn't ever my kids that broke me down into tears. It was always the world telling me how to be. And as soon as I stopped listening while still listening to what would be a lesson that I could take on to help them. As soon as I learned how to do that balance, that's a hard balance, right? You either want to just stop listening to anyone and then you miss the gold or you listen to everyone and you don't know what to do. And that's the state most the parents are in right now. They've listened to everyone, they don't know what to do. Their kids have gone to the schools, they've had to do what the teachers have said, they've had to do what the therapists have said, and they've been treated like they don't have any power or knowledge and they're not the expert. So they've given that away and they're in a complete state of confusion and then the pandemic hits and they have to stay home and they've been told they don't know how to do it all this time. So they're stuck thinking, I don't know how to do it, I'm gonna mess up my kid and the kid feels the stress and the next thing you know, the whole house is falling apart couple of deep breaths and just get, you know, fall back in love with your child. Don't worry about what they're supposed to learn. It's just a special year and teach them the next thing. If they're putting blocks in a line, see if you can get them to put blocks in a curve or in a tower instead, or, you know, maybe it's pull up your pants. It's just the next thing. Just teach them the next thing and stop worrying about it. Before you know it, you did a lot of next things and they learned a bunch of stuff.
1: That's powerful. That's really, that's like gold right there. You know, I, this question popped into my head and I think it may have changed for you over the years, but what keeps you going?
0: Well, uh, yeah, a lot of people ask that. Is Of course, it's changed over the years. Um, I don't know. I, I like being happy now. So having the tool and the knowledge on how to do that um, makes it so that there's nothing to stop you from keeping going. Um, what prevents you is negative emotion. So if you don't have that, then why wouldn't you keep going? Right? <laughs> you get up in the morning <laughs> right, 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 and, and you're not, why would yeah. you stop? I mean... <laughs> right um (laughs) yeah so I I, I've learned enough and become a woman that can just say oh yeah actually that doesn't feel good no thanks and um and I I, I, there's no reason not to keep going in the past though it was having a goal it was having a purpose and now the purpose is so ingrained in me and and so and you know that I don't even have to look for it anymore but I always had the purpose of, you know, let's get the kids independent. Let's get the kids safe. Let's get the kids. It was the kids, the kids, the kids. And then as that worked, I had the purpose of, oh, no, are the grandkids okay? I need to help with the grandkids. And, oh, my neighbor's kid. Uh Uh-oh. And, oh, that lady in the parking lot's beating her kid. I have to step forward. I'm terrified. I got to do it anyway. I'm terrified. I'm doing it. Like, it just, um, you know, it, it just becomes who you are. And that's your purpose. If you don't have a purpose, you should find one. Because without it, you're probably just going to walk through your days. And one day you're old and you die. And it, you never really kept going. You just sort of treaded water the whole time.
1: So where can people, where would you like people to connect with you and find your books? And, you know, where is the best place to find you? And I'll put this in the show notes too. Okay. I thought you were going to say, where can you find your purpose? (laughs) My answer
0: is your childhood. You've always known your purpose. You just probably think you don't deserve it or something. So go there. Um, So I never told you all, but um, I'm called the brain broad. And as you heard from my story, I had to be abroad sometimes. So it seems, and I go abroad, I travel all over the world. So it was a great title and I work on the brain. So, And I'm also the only one. So if you were to Google the brain broad, you'd find me Um, in case you don't know how to spell Lynette Louise on LynetteLouise.com or Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram. If you look for the Brain Broad, you're going to find me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's Lynette Louise, L-Y-N-E-T-T-E-L-O-U-I-S-E. I I also have another website, which is brainbody.net. Don't put an and in there or you'll get the and don't go.com. So it's brainbody.net. Okay.
1: Um, But you can, I'm
0: findable. I'm really findable. Yeah.
1: And you're about to, by the time this airs, you will be on your trip. So. uh, Yeah.
0: uh, Well, I plan on, um, I'm doing an autism on the road series on the autism channel. Uh, You can watch a lot of my stuff there. I have Fix It in 5 is a docu-series. It's fantastic. You should watch it. But um, also I, I now put it on YouTube for people who didn't have the autism channel because of the stay at home stuff. So I, thought I better make it available so my youtube channel my uh and all of that's linked from my website so if you go to my website you can get to anything
1: great thank you so much for I know you're a very busy woman and I am very happy you were able to give me a little bit of time for this episode it was great to talk with you and you thank you
0: for sharing your audience with me I hope they
1: stuck with it long enough to get some benefit Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit ATECpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.